God's Word declares, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. For not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended. The floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these things that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. I am a little reticent to move forward out of Acts chapter 19 and away from the city of Ephesus. I kind of like to believe that Paul was a little reticent to leave Ephesus too. I think there was going to be evidence later in the book of Acts that this was one of his favorite places to minister. uh, And probably spending just a couple of weeks in this chapter really wasn't sufficient. Um, And hopefully in the course of the weeks we've spent here, we have learn something, and uh, I think it is one of the more valuable passages of Acts that does not get nearly the amount of attention that it should um, in most of our study and thought in, in, among the church in terms of our message and how we communicate it. Uh, just a very quick reminder, um, because I don't want to leave the chapter, but we're going to, we're going to press on. Um, But just uh, very quickly, our study has really been focused in, in this regard in Ephesus, of what is our message. Uh, That is, what is the way that we call Christianity? And uh, the real issues are are twofold, really, that uh, we have tried to delineate. One of them is 
how narrow is that way? And does it have shoulders on the road? The other one is, how straight is that way? When we begin to understand that the way is narrow and that the way is straight, we begin to realize that maybe churches are not so filled with followers of the way as we once thought. And that each one of us needs to examine ourselves and consider our ways, as the Old Testament prophet calls us to, a little more carefully. We have found that believing in a Savior isn't good enough. You must believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not simply enough to believe that the Old Testament promised one to come. I think most every Jewish person, Israelite in Israel today, to some degree, believes that there's a Messiah to come. But they have not identified the Messiah who has come, Jesus Christ. And so we found that it was necessary not just to believe that a Savior would, be, would come that has been promised, but there must be a reception of the one who has come. It is not enough to simply be sorry for your sin and enter into a baptism of repentance under John, but it was necessary that you receive Christ as the payment for your sin that you are repenting of and receive that baptism that, they would, that signifies a new life that we are called to live. We've also learned that it is not sufficient to believe in someone else's Jesus. Though someone else, though a parent, though a friend, though a, a, a fellow church member might believe in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who died, buried, rose again, ascended into heaven, and is their propitiation. It's not enough for us simply to put our trust in their Jesus, but there must be a personalizing of that message. That there is not this adherence to Christ because I'm in this community, whether that community is a family, a church, or a nation. There must be a personal response to this message. The seven sons of Sceva learned that lesson the hard way, bruised and beaten, to realize you cannot just talk about the Jesus whom Paul teaches and be in a third-person relationship with God. That I'm outside of that one-on-one relationship. It cannot, it's not sufficient to, be, uh, a, to, to claim the name of the Jesus whom so-and-so teaches or preaches or proclaims, but rather that it must be your Savior. That that is the only means by which we can come into the powerful quickening that the Bible offers to all who believe, as we saw, saw this morning Sunday school, through the Spirit of God, making us alive. And so we have narrowed the road. And it's interesting, as I look over recent church history, even just in my few years of ministry, how the church has been trying desperately to make the road wider. We have just tried to clear out the, the woods on either side and, and to clear that way and tried to 
just, uh, if we could put a second lane in, if we could put in wide shoulders that are wide enough, not just for a bike path into heaven, but, but for another whole avenue. So we could just have this wider way that it's easier for people to enter and to go. And we uh, want to prove Christ a liar when he says narrow is the way and few there be to find it. We are convinced that we can do a better job than Jesus in providing a way for people to heaven by broadening the message. And what we have done by widening that entry is we have a whole lot of people that seem to be traveling parallel with us who really aren't on the way. Because the fact is, is at the end of the life, there is a very narrow one-lane bridge. And all this shoulder work that the church is doing today is going to be dropping into the abyss because there is no other bridge to heaven but Jesus Christ, the one and only way. And the tragedy is that while many of us may be on that way, we are not just tolerating, but we are smiling at and encouraging these who are traveling on the berm, who are in the gravel, driving along beside us, and knowing that their destiny is eternal destruction, because ahead of us, when that call comes for the end of our life, when we discover that, oh... That wide berm doesn't go anywhere but to the same place everywhere else goes, and that is into the pit of hell. And while we go across this wonderful bridge called Christ, these that we applauded and comforted in the width of the way of salvation that we think we created, that we've improved upon the plan of God, has meant devastation for their eternity. And so, we have taken our time at Ephesus to really focus in on the fact of the narrowness of our message, that there is just one way, and it is a single lane. And as we have read earlier today in Matthew Christ was very clear in saying that there would be few who have found it, but there will be many who think they are on that way. Who are going to be saying, Lord, Lord. And whether they think that just believing in God is enough, just believing in a Savior is enough, however you want to define Him, whether it's believing uh, in someone else's God, well, my parents believe this, so I must believe this. Um, I'm a member of this church, therefore I'm okay. Uh, whatever statements that they might claim um, that gives them some sense that they're okay with God without a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, They're tooling along and they will come there and say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I don't know you. And the sadness of ministry is that there are too many pulpits and too many churches, too many Sunday school classes, well, <laughs> hardly any Sunday school classes anymore, anywhere. But there's just too many places where that is encouraged. You can ride the berm, ride the berm into heaven. You can ride the, the, the outer edges. We can widen the road. We can add some lanes. 
There's only one engineer that can bridge the span between death and life. And that is Jesus Christ. And it's time for us to be sure that our message is clear. That it is distinct. I am not convinced that we have hidden the way of Christ by letting it overgrow. I think rather, especially in the Western church, we have added confusion to the way of Christ by adding so many different ways. The second lesson that we have really been focusing in on here in in Acts 19 involves the straightness of the course. That in this way, the way to heaven, the way called Christianity, um, there is no room to turn around. There's no place for U-turns. There's no place for weaving back and forth. And Christ has made it very clear that the expectation is that we'll be righteous in a godless world. With that expectation, that we will hear the saying, His sayings and that we will follow them. That the way that we are going on that leads to heaven, and I love that God, that Christ uses this. Jesus says in Matthew 7, it's difficult. And boy, we have kind of soft-pedaled it, haven't we? We kind of sound like it's a downhill path with the wind, and you can put it in neutral and just coast into heaven. That's largely how we have portrayed the Christian life. That, that you know, God doesn't have any expectations. There's not going to be any, any hazards. There's not going to be any difficult terrain. There's not going to be any uphill to this journey. But rather, it's just going to coast in. And as long as you found your way somewhere on this broad path that we have created, you can just coast right down. But Christ says differently that the way is difficult that leads to life. And he talks about the hazards that are there. In Matthew seven fifteen, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, inwardly they're ravenous wolves. And he asks about the fruit that you're bearing. And by your fruits you'll know them. They tell us to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. That we be wise and build upon the rock with the expectation that rain will descend on us in a flooding proportions. I fear that there are too many believers who have caught the health, wealth, gospel and think that somehow they can set up a spiritual shanty town that will always have the sun above it and will always have cool breezes blowing through it. and are devastated when something different happens and that sandy, unsupported structure collapses around them and they walk away from the church saying, well, I tried Jesus and he didn't work. He didn't work because he wasn't yours. Because you didn't enter the narrow 
way that is straight. That is, that it's full of righteousness. That there are no hairpin turns whereby we go back. And, and we see this in the Ephesian church where they gather together and say, we're going to burn every bridge behind us. We're going to take those magic books. We're going to set them on fire. We're not going to tell them to others. We want no one to pursue that path. We are going to destroy that old way. We're going to destroy that old life. We don't want to go back there. We don't want to have a reverse on our vehicle any more than spiritually. We want to have a neutral. We will not go back. We have our minds and our eyes and our attention stayed on this one objective. And that is that I want to know Christ and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of sharing the sufferings. I might be like Him. As Paul declares in Philippians. This is the straight path that God calls us to. And there is great wisdom in establishing ourselves on the rock of righteousness first imputed to us and then with an expectation that having received it from Christ that we will then live it before men. This is the straight, narrow way that we have discovered among the Ephesians. And we have seen the opposition rise up against that. But I want to remind you also one other thing of the impact such a message has. Because we would be told by the marketers and the Christian marketers of our age that preaching this kind of message um, is going to really narrow your ministry. It's really going to make uh, your limited uh, effect upon people, you're going to really uh, diminish your congregations. But instead, what we find is exactly the opposite, that the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God, and they have totally missed the boat. That is, when this kind of message is preached and received, that we were on that way personally, that we have not widened it, but that we have understood its narrowness, that there is just a singular means for a right relationship with God, that person and work of Jesus Christ personally applied to me, that I become a follower, a disciple of Him, that I follow Him not only by trusting in His sacrifice, but of walking in His ways, led by His Spirit in righteousness and truth. That the impact of that upon a community is overwhelming. And it will, if it is fleshed out in a church, will have dramatic impact. And it will raise up something none of us like, and that is enemies. It will raise up opposition. They will say, no, you are so radical that you are going to undermine our very economy with that kind of thinking. And again, if we are to truly live out the Scriptures in terms of our care for one another within the church, in terms of, of the social justice that it calls for, um, it would certainly radically transform the economy of this nation for sure, wouldn't it? I've often said that one of the main reasons we have the social programs funded by our government is because we weren't doing them sufficiently as a church. We were being negligent. 
that widows and orphans weren't cared for the way they ought to have been. That the poor weren't received and ministered to as they ought to have been. That we weren't diligent in sharing as we ought to have been. That we were so busy chasing the American dream that we forgot that such dreams are elusive. That we should have been woken up to the reality of Christ. But the Ephesians were not so. Twelve men responded to the gospel and burned every bridge behind them that they might follow Christ and Christ alone and that transformation impacted thousands to such a degree that the very livelihood of falsehood was jeopardized. In the midst of all this, Paul is ready to defend himself and the way. He is ready to go out there and to face the angry crowd yelling great as Diana of the Ephesians. He is ready to put his case before them and the believers hold him back, concerned for his well-being. And we have found this and we will continue to find this throughout his travel And this brings us into the next chapter where he is recognizing he has already understood. As we saw in chapter 19, the Holy Spirit has already communicated to him that um, he has to get to Rome via Jerusalem. Now, isn't that an interesting way to Rome from Athens? I'm sorry, from Ephesus? Ephesus is a port city. There's lots of ways. You can jump over to Corinth pretty quick. Go across the peninsula there, jump on another ship, and be in Rome, just lickety-split like that. But that's not how Paul's going to get to Rome. Paul's going to get to Rome via Jerusalem, <laughs> and he knows it. And I put a bug in your ear last week, I hope you've thought about it a little bit, that uh, God's warning of us, for us, is not so much to help us avoid trouble, but to be prepared for it when it comes. But the believers love this man who has brought them the gospel and they care for him deeply and they want to protect him as much as possible and we're going to find this to be a theme all the way through the balance of the book of Acts and it's interesting that God almost has to take him away from all of those people and put him into a place where he didn't bring the gospel to Jerusalem in fact he was a late arrival to the gospel among that group um and to leave himself somewhat unprotected. To fulfill something the Spirit had already communicated to him, and that is that before this is all over, you have got to be in Rome, in Caesar's house, sharing this message. So, when you look at the effect on Ephesus, and you look on where this is going to take Paul, right into Caesar's household, right into the royal guard, Um, No, I don't think that a narrow message um, is going to weaken anything. It is the watered-down message of church and religious marketers that has debilitated the church from reaching the lost and impacting her community. A call today, and it is a clarion call from God's Word, is to preach 
the truth. And the truth, by definition, is absolute and narrow. It is not subjective. It is not based upon whether you like it or not. It just is. And so, we want to travel down this narrow way and take it to our ultimate destination, which isn't a happy life here on earth, which isn't materialistic at all, but rather it is that place that has been prepared for us in the presence of our God. And all that that would be our longing for. When I head out on vacation, I don't know about you guys, I know Bill Roberts shares this exact same frame of mind with me. I want to get there. I want to get there. And if you tell me there's sights to see along the way, well, that's okay. But if my goal and aspiration is the beach or the mountain or wherever it is, I want to get there. There are several nice places that I could stop along the way to the Bahamas. And I've never stopped there in all the years we've owned that place. I've never stopped at the ice caves. I've never stopped and hiked on Moro. I've never stopped any of those places because I just want to get to the Bahamas. Because that's my refuge. Oh, that we would spiritually have that view of heaven. Yeah, there's lots of distractions along the way here on earth. But oh, that we would stay on that narrow thing and with our objective in mind. I want to get there. There is my refuge. There is my resting place. That is where I want to be. These other things... They're interesting, but you ever notice about interesting things along the highway? They're expensive. On our Oregon Coast vacation, we stopped at the Seal Cave, no, the Sea Lion Caves. And we paid 14 bucks a pop to go down a little elevator to go in a cave where sea lions breed. And we saw two sea lions. And we walked out on a cliff and got to see them out there and we had to have binoculars if you wanted to see anything. $14 a pop. We bit. It was a big tourist thing. Don't ever go to the sea lion caves. Just drive up the coast a little bit farther. Get out of your car. Walk out on the beach. And I kid you not, I was from here to William to a sea lion. The distractions along the way that the world keeps saying with all their signs and glitz and glamour are expensive and distracting and aren't fulfilling. Keep your mind, keep your heart stayed on the destination, the true resting place, the refuge, the rock, Jesus Christ. That place that he's prepared for us. And this, I am convinced, drives Paul because that's what he says drives him. Is that knowledge and that passage in Philippians is is a precious one to me. That of all the things that I could pursue, this is my pursuit that I would be found like Christ, putting Him on, wearing Him every day, and chasing after that resurrection that I may join Him in that wonderful place. But on the road, we have work to do. And Paul is not going to be negligent about that work. So we are on a narrow path, but we have 
a journey to travel. And so we want to continue on the way in chapter 20. That's my introduction. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And we thank you now for the opportunity to look in your word. And Lord, help us to keep it fresh in our minds. Every day, what our objective is. Lord, keep us from distraction. And keep us from doing great injury to your message by seeking to widen it or to make it unnecessarily curved. Lord, it's certain that Jesus is the only way and it's certain that you expect righteousness and that for us to be holy as you are holy and we need your help in that desperately. And now as we look further into your word, we pray that we might build on that foundation once again. That we might be attentive our minds, but also with our hearts. We might, as we have sung earlier, want to hear your truth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 20 of Acts begins after the uproar had ceased, so we're still in Ephesus, you know that. And it says, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece. And stayed three months, and when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. I'm going to stop there because I am already unabbreviated because of my long introduction. I'm not going to get into the ministry there at Troas. Um, we'll keep sleeping Tychicus for next week, shall we? Or Eutychus, isn't it? Eutychus, sorry, Tychicus is one of the guys that is named. So we'll talk about sleeping Eutychus next week. And uh, we'll have you all stand during the sermon to make sure that you don't fall asleep that week. Um, and so we're going to... Just look at this, and we're going to look at it a little more significantly, I hope, than just an itinerary, a travel plan, uh, a triptych. This is not really what we're um, going through, but rather we're seeing the working of God leading and guiding Paul um, to this very important trip to, uh, back to Jerusalem. And again, he is in Ephesus, he's going to cross over because as he has done, Regularly, he revisits the churches to strengthen and encourage them. This is his pattern in ministry. We saw it more deliberately described by Luke um, earlier in the first missionary journey where they traveled through Asia Minor there, through Galatia, and then they returned to the same way, even though they had a very short trip they could have taken to get to Antioch. Instead, they backtrack, go all the way back and visit all the churches anew, uh, visit one place freshly with the gospel because they had missed it due to the contention over John Mark and then headed back uh, to Jerusalem and then had ended up in Antioch, which isn't very far from where the, the farthest extent of their missionary journey. So similarly here, Paul is going to uh, revisit some places. He says, I have to um, have a follow-up visit. In many of these places, if you recall, every 
place seems to be his ministry is cut short. You notice that? As he's going along, we're getting a good group, and they're starting to impact the community. Suddenly, people are trying to kill Paul. And the disciples are sneaking him out of town. Over and over again, including these places in Macedonia. Yes, this is where the vision was. Come over to Macedonia and help us. Um, So we're talking about Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, places like that, where we have all of these uh, churches springing up but in a relatively short period of time of Paul's ministry. And while Paul tries to invest in them the message as succinctly and as, as powerfully as possible, we recognize, that, the, and he recognizes, that, that months, measuring your ministry in months is pretty brief. Um, I've been your pastor for, does anybody know? You're thinking about it. It was in the 90s. You're working on it a little bit. Let's see. Who would know? Uh, Miss, yeah, my kids would know. All right, Valerie, help me out. How long? Yeah, here. Nope. She's trying to think of how old she was when we came here. When we were building the house, she was still in one of those chairs sleeping in the car. 17 and a half years. Almost 18. It'll be 18 this, this coming up. 17 and a half years. Can you imagine ministry of months? So the necessity of these visits was obvious. In addition to the fact of the brevity that was forced upon him by the opposition that rose up to his ministry... Um, not inside the church, but from the community, because it was so effectual that the community, the Jewish community particularly, but sometimes, like in Ephesus, it was an uproar of the of the pagan community, and uh, uh, responding, it, it caused them to move on. Um, there was the brevity, but there was also, in addition to that, Paul was beginning to recognize that behind him was coming men without honor. Men who are trying to do exactly what we've been talking about. Widen the road. Or put up roadblocks to it. Of Jews trying to implement a legalistic uh, keep the law in addition to Christ. And uh, Paul recognized that this was going on. And we see the interaction between him and particularly the church in Corinth because we have two letters and we know that there was at least one more possibly two more. There are multiple visits all to protect and to guard this church from either going off into carnality or going off after uh, error and false teachers um, and and sometimes both at the same time. uh, We find that uh, uh, these trips are necessitated. They were were important. And Paul heads back and we're going to see the effect of this um, kind of very subtly by, by Luke given here in chapter 20. And so, we have a loving parting again. And this seems to be the pattern. Paul doesn't want to leave, but he recognizes the need to leave because he becomes the, the, uh, the flint of, this, uh, of the opposition. He becomes the, the focal point for them. And so, 
rather than than uh, uh, exacerbating the situation, he goes on, and but not without a lot of loving care from those that he has introduced Christ to. And we see the embracing, and we're going to see it. Uh, later on uh, in this chapter as well, in his revisit to Ephesus on the way to Jerusalem again, uh, we're going to see that visit uh, and the tenderness that is there, that these individuals recognized what Paul was doing. He, they recognized the great costs that he incurred to do that job. They recognized the great benefit that came to them because he went out with the gospel. And so we have this tender goodbye of verse 1. And he goes all around the region there, um, comes to Greece, uh, stays three months, it says, uh, I'm sorry, all over the region of Macedonia, which is in this period of time not considered Greece. Uh, Macedonia was its own region. Greece would have been southern. All of this, Achaia, Greece, and Macedonia is today modern Greece. Encompasses all of those regions. So Macedonia is your northern area um, there. And then he works his way through all those churches, uh, strengthening them, encouraging them. And the same message we saw in chapter 14 has to be his message. What is it? I'm going to encourage you, build you up, uh, and strengthen you. And uh, with this message, we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> How would you like that for your return visit? Here he comes. Return visit. What does he remind you of? Two things. Number one, your goal, your aspiration, your objective, the kingdom of God. You want to enter the kingdom of God. That is where we want to be at the conclusion of this church age. This is where we want to be at the conclusion of his ministry, of each in believer's life. That's the objective, the kingdom of God. And the second thing he wants to make sure they all are well aware of is that that road is hard. And shame on those preachers who are out there telling you that you can glide into heaven. Because my Bible continually goes back and says that road is hard. And so he's encouraging them not to avoid it, but to brace for it, to be prepared for it, and to overcome it. And there is a huge difference between being overcomers and being avoiders. And we are preaching avoidance of trouble instead of overcoming it in our churches today. Just be quiet, sit back, and don't say a word. Don't cause trouble. Don't be disruptive. Just take it easy and glide into heaven. Don't make enemies. And I don't find Paul to be of that character. And I can't find Peter to be of that character. John to be of that character. I think some of those guys were called sons of thunder, weren't they? They are noisy. And that's how we're going to impact. But we come in and he encourages them. It says with many words. Uh, we're going to get a glimpse into that next week of how many words he uses. 
when you have a brief ministry, um, you got to dump a lot of stuff on people very quickly. You all are getting it in very, very small portions. You realize that, right? This is, ex- this is like little nibbles you're getting at a time. Um, and, and by the way, the candy of the world is coming to you in gobs, in two-hour and three-hour increments. You're getting the candy of this world, the meat of truth, the milk of the word. You're getting in very small increments um, of 40 minutes a week. Hopefully you're in God's word a little more than that on your own. But in terms of being spoon-fed, that's pretty small. And that's your milk. That's your meat. The entertainment you're focusing on, that's just sugar. And if you want to... See what that does to people down the road. Just keep feeding your kids sugar of that kind of quantities and see what happens. And no parent in the right mind would flood their child with junk food and sugar and give them protein once a week. But spiritually, that's exactly what we're doing. And so Paul comes in and he realizes his time is short and he's going to fill that time. And if he has to talk all night, he's going to talk all night because the ship sails in the morning. And I love, by the way, I love going to India. That trip, that was spectacular. You know how long I taught? Till I was done. You know how long that was? That was four hours in the morning and four hours in the afternoon. And they sat there and not one of them slept. They hungered and thirsted for it. Oh, that we would have that kind of desire. So Paul's coming in. He's using many words. He's going to encourage them to strengthen them. He knows what they're up against. They're, they're up against opposition out there. They're up against false teachers inside that are going to creep up. He's going to warn them about that. And for three months, he has a very limited time to go through. First, he's gone through Macedonia. Then he's going to spend three months in Greece. And when you think of Greece, you've got to think about um, Athens and in that region. He's getting ready to head out. But it says in verse 3 that the Jews plot against him as he was about to sail. He's about ready to leave and they're like, we're not letting this guy out. We have another chance to get him and let's kill him. And this is going to be the last time that we're going to have a bunch of Jews getting together plotting Paul's death. But here it is again. And whatever, they have figured out what, what boat he's going to sail on. They have set the trap They are ready to kill this man, to murder him, and God divinely warns him. And this is interesting, okay? Why has God divinely warned him? You guys say, well, I thought it was about overcoming and not avoiding. And this is the balance. He has been divinely told, you're going to be in Rome. He was not divinely told, you're going to be a martyr at the hands of the Jews in Greece. And so he is going to fulfill his mission. And as he seeks to not necessarily avoid being murdered, a criminal act against him, in a very different way, he is going to really almost embrace imprisonment and a political act against him. He's going to embrace that. I'll embrace going to prison. I'll I'll be your 
I'll, I'll be a prisoner here in Jerusalem as long as it takes, Caesarea as long as it takes, Rome as long as it takes, but uh, I'm going to keep ministering. That's Paul's retirement plan, God's style. How do you retire from the ministry? You go to prison. That's where you get to rest and not travel so much. Paul's going to uh, narrowly escape this because it's not what God intends for him. And it's not that we go out there and look for violence we perpetrate against us. That is not what I'm proposing. But I'm, what I'm proposing is that we don't water down our message simply or just fail to do our job as believers simply because it is too much trouble for us. We want to avoid that. So Paul is warned off and he sends his way back through Macedonia and we discover something about the churches and how much they love this man. In verse 4, we now have Paul's traveling group fully described for us. Look at it. We have Sopater of Berea. Remember the Bereans? They are more noble. And they sent one of their best. Aristarchus and Secundus of Thessalonica. They sent two guys to travel with Paul. They're basically building a group that will go with Paul all the way to Jerusalem. We have Gaius of Derby. Now that is over there in Galatia from his first missionary journey. He's with them. So not only do we have Macedonians, we have those from Galatia. Timothy, of course, is also from Galatia. Tychius and Trophimus from Asia, it says there. And, uh, and we, we are introduced to him uh, as well in other passages. And so we find these two men and so, and we have one other person that's in this traveling band, and that is Luke himself, because in verse 5 we have the plural first person, us, telling us that Luke has rejoined the group. And Luke is traveling with Paul while the other men took the ship over to Troas. And, and so Paul is going to make his way around. They get up to Philippi, which is up in Macedonia. Uh, they celebrate the Days of Unleavened Bread there, and uh, they get to Troas, and they're going to stay there seven days. And we find that Paul is, is on a course, and he knows where that course is going. God has put in his spirit that he needs to get to Rome to fulfill all that was described way back at his conversion in the early chapters of Acts, where it says that you're going to have to suffer, you're going to, have to preach for me um, before the Gentiles, and before kings. That's going to be fulfilled. And that has not happened yet. He has certainly defended himself in many environs, but not before kings. And he recognizes that the prophetic word of God is sure. And therefore, he has set this course, and he recognizes that uh, he's going to get back to Jerusalem. And from there the Lord will put him before kings. But just because that's out there, he's going to persist in ministry. 
And we're going to see his ministry in Troas and its transition. It's not going to be on the Sabbath anymore. Verse 7 doesn't say on the seventh day of the week. It doesn't say on the Sabbath. Now it is the first day of the week. And we find out that the first day of the week is when the disciples come together. And we have this transition because now his ministry is is a little bit different on this trip back. It is not so much evangelistic as it is about establishing the leadership of these churches and establish them in God's word and its truth. And he recognizes that the that his evangelistic facet of his ministry is going to be really picked up in jail. In the prisons of Jerusalem and Caesarea and Philippi, on the prison ships going across the Mediterranean, that's where his evangelistic ministry is going to really blossom in his later years. And so his focus now is on the believers. So instead of entering the synagogue on the Sabbath, uh, where everybody's looking for him and hunting him anyway, um, he is going to join with the disciples who are gathering the first day of the week. And there is no way that Paul's going to come into town and not meet with the saints. So precious is their relationship. And we find this tenderness between him and his people. They don't want him traveling alone. They don't, they, he has cared for them spiritually. He has cared for himself and all of his entourage physically by making tents all along the way. And they are going to take this opportunity to travel with him, to send their best to Jerusalem, to witness to the church in Jerusalem of all that God is doing through this man and what God is doing in these churches throughout Macedonia, Greece, Achaia, Asia, um, Galatia, in all this region. They're going to send these representatives all to travel. We also know that there were gifts being carried by these men that are going to be distributed to the people in Jerusalem because of the great uh, need that was represented there. And they're all sending these together with this loving regard for this man. And what a contrast. And oh, that we would have these kinds of contrasts in our life. You have people trying to kill you. (laughs) And you have these tender loved ones. Doing, taking every measure they can to protect you. And it seems when it comes to Paul, there's almost no one in between. And I would contend with you the reason that, that is the case is because of the narrowness and the straightness of the road he traveled. It was a definitive line. Christ defined him to find his message. And that line, that narrow road, divides. There are those who will reject it and oppose it. And they will be our opposition. They will want to kill us. They will want to stop us, to quiet us, to shut us up, to silence. There will be those that will tenderly care for us. And lovingly weep over any thought of not seeing one another again this side of glory. And we will see that happening time and again in the chapter 2 to come. As Paul meets with these beloved ones. 
And what you aren't going to see through this is any apathy. And this is perhaps the most disturbing part of our Christian experience today. We don't experience people trying to kill us, but neither do we experience people so lovingly concerned about us they weep at the thought of being separated from us. We travel a road of apathy. And I contend that the reason that road is so apathetic is because we've made it too wide and too crooked. We are swerving back and forth, in and out of the world. We are driving in gravel, careening towards a cliff where there is no bridge. We've been studying the Spirit of God in Sunday school, and this morning we talked about the gifts and service and Spirit empowering us. And every single passage where the gifts of the Spirit are listed, either before it or immediately after it, we are told about the love of God. This defines us because it defines the narrow road. A straight road that leads to life. The tenderness that we see here and the animosity that we see here directed towards Paul. He is being hunted and he is being guarded simultaneously. And I'm convinced because of the clarity of his message that there is one way. His name is Jesus. And it's a holy way. And that ought to divide people into clear camps. And this muddy world we live in of grays is not of Christ. It is the world of a muddied and confused message that seeks to do God would not. And that is to widen a road that is intended to be narrow. To put in distractions along the way to draw us off putting curves to lead us into error and sin. And the end result is an apathetic church that doesn't care for its own. An apathetic world that doesn't notice we're there or not there. And we live in the gray. We live in the doldrums. We sang a song, Revive Us Again. And I'm convinced more and more that that kind of revival will demand us to narrow our message, to straighten our lives, to stand up boldly and encounter tribulation as it comes. Our hearts clearly set upon a destination that diminishes anything this world can offer. And then there will be a clear demarcation. Then men will either hate us 
or lovingly weep over us. But until we have that kind of a message in our lives, not just in our theology books, we will have to live with the apathy of Christians who don't care that other Christians are hurting and fallen. In a world that doesn't notice whether you're there or not because you've made no difference. Let's stick to the message that's narrow and hard that we can make a difference and guide some, not many probably, but some, to that one lane that has a bridge at the end of it. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And thank you for the testimony of all these churches in Macedonia and Greece, Achaia, Asia, Galatia. Oh Lord, we thank you for their tender care of their own. And Lord, I thank you also for the testimony of those who would hunt down believers to slaughter them. Because they were recognizable. Because even if it was a criminal act, that they would do it to try to stop that powerful, particular message And Lord, we confess before you that this is not really our experience. And we are the worst for it. We see what it will take to reclaim it. Give us the courage to walk in the way that leads to life. Be ready to encounter the tribulation that leads to the kingdom of God. And we might do it in holiness, as you are holy. And by the power of your Spirit, I work within us. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.